0: The night's shadow wrapped its arms around him, a lone American off the Horn of Africa. Most nights the dark brought uncertainty, but on this night, it brought hope. In the wee hours of the morning, Zach Johnston was attempting to sail past Somalia undetected. Every light on his boat was off. Every person below decks was silent. Zack and his crew wanted no part of the pirates who'd already kidnapped, ransomed, or killed dozens of unlucky sailors that year. And on board one of the last boats to transit the Gulf of Aden that season, he was pressing his luck. back to the Get Lost Podcast, everybody. I'm your host, Joe Sills, a travel writer with Travel Channel, uh, HGTV, Lonely Planet, Discovery Channel, a couple of other places. Today, I am joined by a man that I believe to be the actual world's most interesting man. Um, he does not work for Dos Equis, but he does drink a whole lot for his job, <laughs> <laughs> so you know it's legit. Um his name is Zach Johnston, and he is an editor-at-large at Uproxx, which is an awesome pop culture website uh, that is worldwide, and he's also an American expat living in Berlin. How's it going, Zach? Hey, how you doing, Joe? It's great to be on the show, and I'm doing well. It's nice to talk to you, man. So what's going on in Berlin?
1: Um, Winter, and it's not Christmas anymore, so the, the shitty part of the end of winter where it's just cold and gray and windy and you want it to be over and the beer gardens to be open again. So you can sit outside in the sun and drink beer with your (laughs) friends.
0: (laughs) What's your best advice for somebody that goes to Berlin in the winter?
1: Uh, go in November and December. (laughs) That's my best advice because that's when the Christmas markets are open. And so the whole city is sort of in a jubilant mode. Everything's like the halls are fully decked on every street and, you know, everybody's going out from basically what is our Thanksgiving. So the third, sorry, the fourth, uh, the fourth Thursday of November. Yeah, uh, they open all the Christmas markets, and everybody's going out after work and on the weekends, and they, you know they're drinking, you know, mulled wine, and they're eating tons of food, and just having a great time.
0: That sounds then, fantastic.
1: Yeah, then all that ends around New Year's, uh, or maybe a week after, and then it's just a slog to get to spring.
0: <laughs> and everybody's just stuffed from all of their uh, holiday merrymaking. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's that sort of like January depression where it's like, oh, got to throw out the tree, take down the lights, you know, like back to work.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, Tell everybody a little bit about where you grew up in the States and how you ended up in Berlin. Because you did this, we had a chance to meet actually uh, on a foreign shore, but I thought it was fascinating that you you purposefully picked Berlin uh, for a lot of great reasons.
1: Yeah. Well, I uh, I grew up in the Seattle area. Um, I was born in this small logging town called Shelton, but I grew up in a small uh, Victorian town called Port Townsend up on the Olympic Peninsula on the uh, Um You know, went to college, did all that. And then uh, in the early 2000s, I just sort of got disenchanted a little bit with, you know, not being able to find a job after college and Bush years and blah, blah, blah. Ended up, you know, Moving to Europe, I spent some time in Prague, Moscow, Indonesia, just traveling around sort of being a a vagabond, teaching English, stuff like that, trying to trying to start a writing career. Um, met my wife in Moscow, which was fun. She's from England. And uh, I ended up after a couple you know round the world trips, being like, okay, if I want to be a writer, I need to you know actually do something towards that. So I ended up going to film school in Los Angeles for screenwriting. And um, long story short, (laughs) uh, my wife's green card was denied because uh, we hadn't been married long enough so they could put it under review. And we wanted to come back to Europe. And Berlin made the most sense because it's got a great film industry here, it's a very international cosmopolitan city. A very high quality of life for a low cost of living, especially back in 2008. Um, And the 2008 recession didn't really hit Germany that badly. And so things kind of kept going here without too much of a downturn.
0: So while we were all uh, struggling over here, you're just business as usual.
1: Basically, I mean, we got extremely lucky. We moved here in March of 2008, so the recession hit in what September 2008, and we just you know dodged a bullet at the end of the day. Uh, And then you know I sort of worked here in documentary for a while. Um, You know the, the documentary film festival circuit around Europe. Uh, ITFA, Dopp, Leipzig, Berlinale, et cetera, et cetera. And if, for anyone who's worked in film before, especially in the documentary, and it's a very up and down career. And I was sort of in a downturn for a while. So I was working in kitchens and behind a, behind the bar in a cocktail bar called Victoria Bar, doing high-end cocktails and things like that. And again, it, it's Berlin. There's a lot of circumstances to that. It being Berlin, bars don't really close here until the last person goes, like, there's no final bell like there is in England at the pub. Right. Um, and so, you know, you get there at seven and you often would be, you know, walk, closing up at five, six in the morning. Wow. And so That's a know, hard life, dude. Yeah, your body can only take that for so long before it's just like, either you're a lifer or you're not. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. as much as I love bartending and the cocktail scene and, you know, drinking, having fun, um, you know, it would, I it, it, it got to a point where I needed an out, and I got extremely, I like to say I won the job lottery, but I got lucky. Uh, uh, UpRocks had uh, started a lifestyle section about four and a half years ago, and I was already a big fan of UpRocks for um, their movie reviews and TV reviews and music reviews uh, throughout the years. And once I saw they started lifestyle, travel, food, drink, I was like, ah, I love this site. This seems like something cool. And so I started sort of poking at the uh, writers and bugging the editor. And finally, the editor got tired of me poking at him and was like, hey, man, do you just want to write for us? And, oh, maybe
0: uh, I should try that.
1: <laughs> yeah. And uh, so you know, and now it's been four years. Actually, four years this month, I published my first piece uh, around February 1st, 2016. And it was about uh, exploring, exploring David Bowie's Berlin in the wake of his uh, untimely death back then. And so, and then it's been sort of, you know, I, I, like I say, I won the job lottery, but then I had to actually put in the work and, you know, it's the sort of thing where I'm sure you can empathize that, you know, yeah, you got to write every day, you know, you got to come up with ideas, you got to learn to pitch, you got to learn to, you know, do the job.
0: Yeah. I think it's a lot of resilience, um, in, in the writing. I mean, it's like dealing with rejection every day. You have to learn to just shrug it off and keep pitching and keep trying. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's also like I I was extremely lucky because I was coming from the film world, screenwriting and documentaries where um, I always had the I was sort of taught in film school. But then I always had the ethos of, you know, workshopping a script or, you know, having somebody's ideas come in to tell you that your ideas aren't quite yet there yet isn't personal. It's not an attack at you. It's the only reason you'll be having this conversation or workshopping or someone saying no is because it's not there yet or you want to make it better. Right. And so that's how I sort of approached travel writing and food and drink writing was if my editor was, came back at me with notes, had nothing to do with me, we just want to have the best product out there. And yeah. so I'm always happy to get notes because that means, hey, I have a blind spot that I can now fill in. And so that's always been my sort of attitude and it's helped me away. And now I went from being you know a freelance contributor to now I'm a deputy editor. So,
0: Which sounds super official and I can't believe they pay you to go around the world and drink booze.
1: <laughs> that's the, that's part of it, yeah but then I got to write about it, like I said, you got to do the work on the back end <laughs>
0: yeah, and the front end um, yeah. I mentioned in the lead that, that if you go to uprocks.com and, and look for Zach's bio, you'll see a lot of articles about pop culture but also lifestyle stuff, uh, and bourbon you're basically a bourbon expert uh, how long did it take you to get that knowledge?
1: Yeah, I, I was sort of a kind of Fit hand-in-hand because I was coming directly from the high-end cocktail world So I was doing a lot of the like big bar conventions and things like that and I had a lot of context in that world already and so Sort of for me. It just kind of was an easy Fit to be like, okay I know how to talk about booze because I can sell it to you know people who are willing to pay 15 bucks for a cocktail and so if I can talk about booze I can write about booze and I I um, with the help of Steve Ramucci, my editor we sort of formed the way we now talk about uh, booze and up rocks, where it's just like, okay, it's not about, you know, excluding anybody. It's not about you being forced to like something you don't like. It's more like, you know, you do you. This is what this is. If you like it, great. That was our baseline. Like, this is just what it is. You decide if you like it, but give it a chance. And so it's like, here's what the product is. Here's what the taste should be. And here's how much it should cost.
0: Yeah, because when you read these pieces, you really get a feel for you know, what the flavors are and stuff. And I think at the end of the show, as a tease, we're going to ask for a couple of recommendations from you. Um, But right now I want to talk to you about a story that took place while you were being sort of a vagabond. Right. Um, This is one of the most amazing tales I've ever heard just because the distance covered the way you covered it and the danger level involved at the time. (laughs) I want to talk to you about the time you you sailed from Thailand to Djibouti.
1: So I'll do a a quick preface here. Uh, My girlfriend, now wife, uh, we were working in Moscow, and uh, basically we decided to cut it and run early because we wanted to go on the Trans-Mongolian. So in the dead of Russian winter, February, we got on the uh, Trans-Mongolian from Moscow to Ulaanbar to Beijing. Um, the Trans-Mongolian
0: you know, is like a, a train that crosses.
1: Yeah, it's, it's the train that crosses. So there's three trains. There's the Trans-Siberian that does Moscow-Vladivostok. There's the trans manchurian that does Russia, Moscow to Beijing but skips uh, Mongolia. And then there's the Trans-Mongolian that does Moscow-Ulaanbaatar-Beijing. <laughs> and so we wanted to go to Mongolia, so we did that one. Um, and, you know, it, it was so cold that I think in either Perm or Omsk, I can't remember which one, I got off the train to go buy some supplies from the uh, the babushkas on the train track, or sorry, the train platform who were there to sell, you like, ramen and dried fish and kobasas and beer and vodka. I got off, and I looked up, it was so cold, it hit you like, it hit you like a train, and I looked up, and it was minus 54 degrees Celsius, and I was just like, nope, and turned right back around and got on the train, because it was just unreal cold. Like, I never felt cold like that before in my life. That's the
0: kind of cold that just eats your body alive.
1: Yeah, yeah. And the sort of thing where it's like, we'll just go to the dining car. It's warm in there.
0: <laughs> um,
1: but so anyway, you know, getting along, we, we went down the coast of China, you know, Shanghai, Hong Kong, blah, 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 down basically the whole coast until we ended up in Thailand. And this was uh, right after the tsunami. And so, well, not right after, maybe two months after the tsunami of, was that 2005, 2004? Okay. And it was a sort of thing where I was like, you know, For me, I've always had this ethos, like, you know, whenever there's a disaster somewhere, people, you know, run away and they take their tourist dollars with them when they need the tourist dollars most there. Yeah. And Uh, so our idea was to go there, teach English, you know, be part of the economy, you know, like, just, you know, be someone who wasn't running away. Um, And we got there, we were in Bangkok for a while, then we uh, took a short flight down to Phuket, found an apartment, started looking for jobs. And um, interestingly, I found a job at the British school. My wife didn't find a job, but she's British and I'm American, so I don't know how that makes sense.
0: Uh, America.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so uh, it just sort of like our, our funds were getting low and like things just weren't quite working out the way we needed them to work out to sustain life there. And, um, you know, and also, honestly, you know, nerves were getting a little strained and, you know, it was... Uh, it was time. It was like, okay, we got to. Are we going to cut and run? Or are we going to try to, you know, work this out? And yeah, and this is we've... right
0: on the edge. That that tsunami was December of '04. It, right. Yeah. It so killed 4,800 people.
1: Yeah, and it was it was interesting because the recovery was already almost like everything was ready to go again already by that point, uh, which was sort of weird because that's a huge turnaround to have so quickly, mm-hmm. um, and that there just weren't any tourists there. Which now, when you think about the fact that Thailand, and that part of Thailand especially, is so over that they have to shut down entire islands, um, it was a really unique time to be there.
0: Yeah, so, I mean, was it like that before 2004-5? Or, or is it just since after the tsunami that they have the infrastructure to support an industry where, like, I mean, probably everyone listening to this show knows somebody or has been to Thailand?
1: Yeah, I would say... I'd say it wasn't until the advent of social media that it really got untenable for some of of these places. Mm -hmm. Um, Just, you know, the the FOMO seekers looking for that Insta shot really spiked tourism. Uh, I went back to Thailand in 2005, 2006, uh, and there were tourists there, but it was very easygoing uh, compared to 2000, or sorry, 2006 compared to 2005. The tourists had already come back by then, but it wasn't in any way over-touristed. Right. You know, it, um, but anyway, so tensions were running high. We decide we go to this hamburger joint on the beach. We're sitting there drinking our beer and our hamburgers, and I notice on the uh, on the beer cooler there's a little eight by eleven, xeroxed cop- black and white copy of a sailboat with a little blurb under it, and you know the little like phone number tags at the bottom that you can rip off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I went up there and I read it as I grabbed another beer and I was like, "Oh, well, somebody's looking for two people to crew their sixty-four-foot uh, uh, boat from Thailand to Africa." And uh, I was like, "Hey, we can do that. That's that's this is our out. This is our way to you know like get back to Europe, find jobs in Europe, and you know, you know, move on." From this situation,
0: we'll figure it out from there. You just your goal is just to get yeah. back to Europe somehow, and yeah, this and is it's a free, free ride.
1: It. It's a free ride, and I had sailed before uh, with my grandfather. He owned a sailboat when he retired, and um, I had spent my I grew up on the sea. Like I said, I was on the Olympic Peninsula. I grew up in a town with water on three sides, and so boating life was always part of my life, um, and. Anna looked at me like I was fucking insane
0: <laughs> <you> because <laughs> she's ne- because she
1: never sailed before in her life. Yeah. Like she'd been on dive boats and things like that, but she's never sailed. And I was like, and I swear to God, this is true. And I don't know why she didn't slam me, but I literally quoted Captain Ron. It's like, you're going to learn. You got to learn out there. And, <laughs> and uh, I got a pretty good scowl for that one.
0: Uh, that's a dick move.
1: Yeah, but, I mean, we sort of talked about it and talked about it, and I was just like, you know, it, I – some – I don't know I'm now verbatim, but I, I talked her into at least meeting with them uh, to see if it's something she thinks she can do. And I gave her, you know, the vernacular what everything, you know, what you – know, the words you're supposed to know, like you know, what's all on the boat and blah, blah, blah.
0: Right, port, starboard. Um.
1: Yeah, you know, tack, blah, blah, blah. And uh, we went and met with them, and it was basically the situation was the, this – this couple with their two uh, preteen kids, or maybe one was a teenager and one was a preteen, had been sailing around the world for two years. They pull into Phuket. They're unloading. The wife drops something on her foot. It shatters. She has to stay in Thailand to get a surgery. The daughter's going to stay. Then they're going to meet us, meet up with us on the other end. And so they need people to crew the boat.
0: Okay, so you're just filling in basically for a portion of their journey.
1: Yeah, and so the captain and his teenage son is going to be there. And they just need somebody to do, uh, basically the night shift. And uh, they seem happy with us. You know, we, we go out to dinner. Everything's fine. Blah blah blah. We get the job. Anna still thinks I'm crazy. <laughs> we uh, we get the insurance money in cash so that we can get on the boat because they have to you have to have some cash so that uh, medically you'll be covered. When so you're you on need
0: the road. cash in case you you know you break a leg and you're in a place where they. You gotta have something, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. And that was a thousand bucks a piece. So not
0: that much, really.
1: No, and also room and board and transportation is covered. So there's that. Uh, You know, it's sort of like if you if you survive till the end, you get that money back. (laughs) Fair enough. Um, Yeah. And so anyway, we move on the boat. We sail away from uh, Phuket in I want to say late March, early April and the first the first crossing is eighteen days to the Maldives and that's a long first crossing to have for anybody um, you know like three four days is a good starter and my wife Anna she got eighteen which is just right in the deep end no pun intended um, but it was sort of great because the captain was really easy going guy uh, he taught her to sail like he understood she didn't know how to sail so he would like teach her, you know the basics. You know, he'd be up there with her, you know, teaching her how to you know put up the sails and make turns and you know do tacks and things like that.
0: And is she learning quickly? I mean, the Maldives. Just looking at a map here, that's a good thousand miles as the crow flies from Thailand. Yeah, it's just yeah. A, a little little group of islands south of India.
1: Yes, yeah, it's it's a long haul. Um, and so yeah, it was sort of just learning as you go, uh, which is actually how you learn to sail. You got to go out there and do it. And it was pretty easy going, like we a couple storms, we were under sail most of the time we didn't really have to worry about fuel too much um, I mean the the biggest I think transition period was when we I was on the night shift and then she, she got uh, on the early night shift and so sailing during the day when you can see everything is great, but sailing at night especially if there's no full moon it's just you're sailing in blindness, it's pitch dark
0: How are you black. able to navigate?
1: Radar and compass as long as you stay on As long as you stay on your course and you know where you are, um, you you know you're you're going in one direction. Right.
0: So at this time, you don't have like a Garmin or something where you have a line you can follow on a GPS, like you would an iPhone now. It's
1: no, no. We're just using old school uh, radar on the deck or on the helm, and then a a compass.
0: And so, is your job to like look out for uh, obstacles and things that the boat might hit?
1: Yeah, generally, so there's the shipping lane that the huge tankers are on. We stayed you know, a few miles south of that so that we're never in the way of those boats, theoretically. We came right. close once, but that was avoided, luckily. Um, and the other thing is when you're closer to land or islands, you have to look out for fishermen because usually those islands' economies are based upon fishing, and so they'll be out at night... And they'll string like five miles of net in between two boats, and you don't want to drive. You don't, don't want to sail through that because it's going to get caught up in everything. And that actually did happen to us once, closer to Oman, where like the only recourse you have, you know, it's middle of the night, it's pitch dark. You got to put on the scuba gear, dive into it's basically probably shark-infested waters, in pitch black with a flashlight, cut off the net. Kind of say you're sorry to the sea, and keep going.
0: Yeah, and the fishermen are are they so far away that they know? Do they know the net got snagged, or
1: probably not until they pull it in, because it would be like you would see on. So you'd be looking at the radar, and you'd see two dots, and the two dots are lined up. You know, that's two fishing boats. Mm -hmm. You're just like, okay, you just need to go around that. And I think what happened that time, if I remember correctly, there were two dots, and as I was as we were going around, I can't remember if I was at the helm or not. But um, as we were going around, there came, we saw a third dot, and so it was just like, basically, we had there was no way to avoid just going through that second and third dot.
0: And you feel yeah. the impact of that when you snag it.
1: Oh yeah, well you get ca- you're, you're sort of like you're caught on a, a net, you know, you just wow. like a fish would be, and so you know you kind of stop. And- It's the sort of thing where uh, we used the uh, the bow and stern thruster to make sure we stayed straight Uh, so we didn't start because with the current, you know, you can get really twisted up and and start pulling the boats towards you. uh, So anyway, that's the sort of things you're looking for. Other than that, avoid storms and get used to a blazing sun burning your skin off. Yeah, so so
0: on the way to the Maldives, you guys are, um, Anna's learning how to sail and You're kind of getting back into it, and it's mostly easygoing. Like you're you're having a good time.
1: Yeah, yeah. Basically, it's sort of like you know, if if a rainstorm comes, you all go out on the deck and you know have your shower in the rainstorm. And you know, every day we'd have a line off the back catching you know beautiful bluefin tuna and you know cutting it up right there on deck for dinner. Uh, Reading books. I mean, we read an amazing amount of books on that trip. (laughs) Uh, Watching movies, just playing games, doing your thing. Uh, the, the the thing I love about sailing is, especially when you're uh, at sea, you really try to make every meal and the time you're together really special. So you cook something really nice, and you all sit together and you eat together, and you chat and you play a game, and then you know you have that moment where it's I hate using this word, but it's kind of like normalcy. Mm-hmm. And then you all know, go, you all know, have to go back, and like I would go to bed and sleep because I had to get up at midnight and do the midnight to six shift. And so you know they do their thing. I'd and pass out and, and so on and that's just after you know 18 days of that though it's sort of like okay come on you yeah. gotta get there now and it, it was beautiful because i i got off at a shift on the uh, 17th day went below fell into my bunk, and when i woke up the next day I, know, I, mean, I usually woke up around noon or something it was the boat was just dead calm and not you know i wasn't being jostled around and I, I poke my head out the porthole, and the sea was just like a mirror. It was so flat, and off in the distance, I saw a little tiny bit of sand. I was like, "Oh, we made it!" <laughs> and so you that get this was like the
0: Maldives.
1: yeah, you get this like jubilation because it's like, "Oh shit, we're actually here!" Like you've got somewhere, and uh, it all just fades away. Like all of the times you were like, you know, too hot from the sun, or you're a little bit seasick, or you know, you were, you know, just sort of staring at the blank page because you've been reading for so long you can't read anymore it just fades away and you're in a new place and what's cool about the Maldives we're in the northern Maldives and so um, it was a place where tourists are not allowed there's no resorts there it's only little villages Um, and they allow sailboaters to stop there specifically because the sailboaters bring money into the local economy and wow. so it's it's one of those places where you have to be a sailboater to go to this part of the Maldives.
0: And they have this little microeconomy based on sailing,
1: sailing and fishing. Yeah. And are so there you, a lot
0: of sailboats that stop there, or is it like a handful? Uh, it's a pretty
1: decent amount because um, everybody checks in, and you know they've got a big book of people who go through. But it's seasonal because usually uh, it's with the trade winds that are moving from east to west, and you sort of you hit those trade winds, and they take you all the way to Africa and the reason we the reason that the the captain was even hiring us in the first place is he wanted to get those trade winds so that he wouldn't have to motor all the way across the Indian Ocean Um, and so we were there I we had to you know we we topped up on fuel got some new food you know you get a you better get a big thing of bananas and hang it off you know the uh, hang it off a rope on the boat and you get a big Whatever you can sort of get, you know, they, for instance, a lot of fish, so we ate a lot of fish. Mm-hmm. And we anchored off a, a deserted atoll, and we would uh, swim there, start a fire, go spear fishing, cook the fish over the fire. Uh, it was great. And but then you know you have to kind of move on because again we're trying to catch the trade winds, and so between the Maldives and the Gulf of Aden. It's a really odd sort of sea, because it's the Arabian Sea, technically, and there's a huge uh, ridge down the middle. Uh, I think it's Carlsberg Ridge. And on one side is sort of the Arabian Basin, the other side is the Somali Basin. And the trade winds go through there, but they stop, and they stop just as we left the Maldives. So we had to motor our way to Oman, because that's how much fuel we had. And so it was like, how far is that? That was, I want to say, a ten or twelve day crossing. Wow!
0: So for Um, ten or twelve days, and sailboats don't have like big outboard motors; they have probably a small inboard motor. Or
1: it's a big, it's a big inboard engine. So there's like an engine room where you know, basically, when the motor's on, it charges batteries through an alternator that you know gives you electricity. Um, But the thing is, when you're motoring that far, things tend to fall apart. Plus, you got to refuel the tanks, and so. It was my job to refuel tanks, and so we had barrels on the deck, and you know you have to sort of suck out the diesel and put it in the uh, put it in the tube, and so you know, and it's the wind's sort of against you because you know we we miss the wind, and so you'd be sitting there and you know you pull the tube out and like you just get a face full of diesel because the wind's just blowing blowing That's in nice. your face. Yeah, and so and then I think a, a water pump or something on the engine crapped out on us and uh, because we're using the the motor more often, and you know, you're sailing, you're out of sea, it's road and it's salt, it's blah blah blah. And so luckily we did get to Oman. We get to Oman, it's 50 degrees Celsius in the shade and Oman has very specific visa rules so since we were there to refuel, we were allowed to go to the port. We got a special port pass which allowed us to go into town and rent a car and go grocery shopping and whatnot and then we had to get the the part fixed, so we ended up being there for a week, sort of just hanging out, having a good time, eating lots of shawarma, drinking lots of juice, you know, drinking lots of really strong tea. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was it was awesome because it was like an unexpected sort of thing, and also we were going to stop there anyway, but for a shorter amount of time uh, to refuel. But since we had to get that part fixed, we just ended up having this week in Oman, in Salalah, in southern Oman, that was unexpected, and you know. It, the only place to get booze there is at the Hilton hotel or at the port at the, uh, the sailors bar. And so we'd go up to the sailors bar and play ping pong and watch, you know, sky TV and drink with whatever ship worth of sailors were in. And it happened to be a cement ship from Poland that was there. So there's all these Polish guys who work on a cement ship, just getting shit housed in this port bar every night. (laughs) And, uh, It's a lot of fun.
0: In the middle of Oman. So paint a picture, if you will, of the geography here. You're in Salalah. It's the south of Oman. And where is that in relation to Djibouti, which is your destination?
1: So basically, if you're looking at the Arab Peninsula, Oman is on the eastern side, which is sort of at the, it's the mouth of both the Persian Gulf in the north and the Gulf of Aden to the west. And so from Djibouti, it's not that far through the Gulf of Aden because you're just going a straight shot into, uh, past the Horn of Africa into towards the Red Sea.
0: Yeah, but therein lies the problem, right? Right. Well, because we knew,
1: because we knew ahead of time that the Gulf of Aden is an extremely dangerous place to travel through as a solo sailboat. In most cases, um, sailboats will stop in Oman, uh, and they'll, until there are like three or four of them and they'll go through together so that, you know, you travel in numbers so that you're not bothered by Somali pirates. But we missed the train winds. So we were basically the second to last boat doing the crossing. Um, there was another small boat behind us, I think a 38-footer with a couple from, I don't know, Michigan or something. Um, and they were way behind us so we couldn't wait for them because it was too long of a wait. So we fueled up, we got our supplies, you know, we went to grocery shopping and, you know, you know filled in, you know, legs of lamb and things like that. Uh, from you know these wonderful Oman supermarkets, and what's sort of beautiful about Salalah is it's in the south, but it's a milder climate. Even though I was saying it's fifty degrees, but there's mountains, like green mountains, right up at the back of it. Mm-hmm. And so at night it would get nice and like really pleasantly cool. Yeah. And then just be so hot during the day that I was I was pulling the dinghy up onto the the deck one day, and it was so hot that my Flip flops actually, the glue melted and they like slid right off.
0: Oh my god. 50 <laughs> Celsius, by the way, for y'all in America. Yeah. That's about 120.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so it was, it was hot during the day. I'll just leave it at that. And so, yeah, we fueled up and we're ready to go. So, like, the, the plan was we leave Oman. There's this spot where like three tectonic plates meet, sort of at the mouth of the Gulf of Aden. We're going to sail down there, fish that spot because the, uh, Basically what happens is this spot meets and there's this, the Carlsport the Ridge comes there that like curves into the Gulf of Aden. And the ridge, like basically, it's, it's like an underwater mountain. And so the mountain comes, or the ridge line comes up. So it, the water goes from extremely deep to extremely shallow. And wherever it's extremely shallow, there's always lots of fish. And the captain liked fishing in weird spots like that. So we're gonna go down to that spot in the ridge, fish that, and then just haul ass, like straight shot. Down in the middle of the Gulf of Aden to Djibouti.
0: So you've got, if I'm looking at a map, the Gulf of Aden is about maybe a little over 100 miles across, uh, like north Sounds to south, right. yeah. and then. But from where you're at in Salala to Djibouti is is three or four times that distance at least.
1: Yeah. So it was, I think, I am going to say a five-day crossing, uh, which isn't too bad at all. That's a pretty. That's pretty fast, uh, yeah. especially because basically we were pedal to the metal. So we uh we came up come out of solo go straight south sort of towards uh Socotra Island which is that like funky Yemeni island with all the weird dragon trees and stuff.
0: That sounds festive. And, uh,
1: yeah, but we didn't stop like we wanted to stop there but it's closer to Somalia than it is to Yemen and it's sort of like we're there on our own. Like had we been with a couple other boats we probably would have stopped but you know we, we needed to get through the Gulf of Aden. So the, the the what you do is you set up to go straight down the middle so that you're not Too close to either shore, and you turn off all your lights at night. You don't fly a flag, you don't put the sails up, so you're not reflecting anything from the sun, because you know the sails, big white reflector, and you just you put the hammer down and go as quickly as you can. And what's sort of interesting is you know you you kind of. The first day, you're going like, oh, shit, oh, shit, oh, shit, oh, shit. And then by the like the second day, you're just like, uh-huh, yep, sure. And we're waiting to get there, because yeah. it's, you know, the...
0: Pirate watch. Like, yeah, right. Pirates. Yeah,
1: yeah, but sailing is extremely boring at the end of the day. I mean, I, it's easy to rom- romanticize it and things like that, but your tolerance for boredom has to be sky high. Uh, and, you you know, you just got to figure out things to do uh, to pass the time. And so what was sort of interesting is we, you also have to have a very good plan. And so when we were fishing, it was basically because I was was piloting most of the time when I was awake. We were on this sort of ridge where we sort of did about, I don't know, maybe 10 or 20 360s around this one spot where there were a whole bunch of fish so that the captain could get his fish on. And uh, after we did that, we are like, okay, hit our fish, we're like, okay, so here's the plan. Like, we we have $10,000 in cash. That's obvious that we're going to leave out or in an obvious place for them to find. Um, we don't have any weapons. Uh, they can take the computers. They can take the radio. You know, we. This is a sailboat. We can sail it without any of that shit. Like we know which direction is where because of the stars and sun. Um, and so the idea is, if, if we get boarded, we just comply. We give them what they want. Give them money, and they go away.
0: You're you know, prepared. No, we, I mean, you leave yeah. Oman and you have a game plan for. Yeah. Like, it, it, we're most likely going to get boarded, or you think just in case.
1: Uh, I was thinking 50-50. I think i probably honest.
0: Uh, th- them's not great odds, man.
1: <laughs> no. Um, I mean, the boat that went before us got boarded. You know, I mean, it's sort of... You know, so that might have been what saved us, because they maybe just were out partying with that cash as opposed to looking for more cash. I don't know. That's complete speculation. But um, anyway, yeah, like we were, we went straight down the Gulf of Aden. We didn't want to stop in Yemen, in Aden, even though that would have been cool at the time. Um, we just wanted to get to Djibouti because uh, Djibouti's sort of interesting. It's you know you think of it as a singular place, but it's, it's, it's actually a country, and it's in a really interesting spot because it's this big um, volcanic floodplain. And it's, you know, right at the bridge of the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden and, you know, the Horde of Africa and East Africa and North Arabia is right there. And so it's this really interesting mixing ground. But so you want to get a,
0: to the capital of Djibouti, which is? Djibouti. right? Yeah. Right. Um, um, but you're, you're of, on watch and you're going through the Gulf of Aden and like, what's, yeah. what's going With through your mind? all lights off.
1: You're um, not much, man. Like, honestly, what was the weirdest thing that I didn't really expect? is as you approach Africa, like the, the sky just sort of turns this hazy taupe beige color from the uh, dust coming up off of East Africa. And uh, it was interesting because at night, that sort of haze was still there and you could feel it, you could smell it, it just smelled different. You know, it, it, the, the air felt different. And so it was more just like, you know, you, you knew you were somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And you were approaching somewhere else, so it was kind of anticipation for, like, hey, we're going like we're going somewhere that feels different, and it was sort of electrifying, and, uh, and yeah, and again, I was on night watch, so like half the time it was me there trying fighting not to fall asleep, by, you know, like four or five a.m. Um, and yeah, it was really uh, it went by really quickly.
0: Were there um, any moments where you you thought you heard a motor or you got a little spooked? Um.
1: Not. not at night, not when I was on watch. There's maybe a couple moments where there's a couple fishing boats that were avoided during the day. Mm -hmm. Other than that, no, not really. So you got
0: pretty lucky, actually.
1: We got very lucky, given that the boat before us did not. Um, And then, you know, you kind of pull into Djibouti, and it's like the city is this, like, there's this kind of like bay, and the city's on this sort of like peninsula at the south end of the bay, mouth of the bay. And you sort of like pull in and yeah, you dock and you have to go drive to the uh, immigration office and you know, customs and they stamp your passports and make sure everything's kosher and excuse me, then you just, we were like, alright we just had this, you know, sort of intense experience, we gotta go like celebrate that we're here and Djibouti, <laughs> being a former French colony we went to this restaurant and drank shitloads of wine and ate a whole bunch of food and you know, it was just like, okay, there's like a sigh of relief where you're just like okay and they were like, "Okay, where are we now? What's going on? What's happening?" <laughs> and so you like wake up the next morning. And you're like, "Uh, where am I? What's this place?" And it was—it's kind of wild because you know this—this you know, this was uh—I want to say 2005—and the city at night still pretty much ran on generators. Uh, and this was also in the age of the internet cafe, and there there was one internet cafe. And so, like, the next day, the first thing was like, well, I'm going to go email my mom and dad so they, they know I'm alive and in Djibouti.
0: <laughs> did you tell them that what you were doing?
1: We told them we were sailing across, and you probably won't hear from us until we get somewhere uh, because it was – and this is six weeks after we left. Right. <laughs> so, and it was just – that's just how it was, man. Like, Maldives, no fucking internet there. You know, and um, I think actually we did contact them in Oman. We must have. I have a memory of going to an internet cafe there for sure and that was like Oman's this sort of crazy place because there's like insane oil wealth and so you'll see like Lambos like going down gravel roads <laughs> in the center of town
0: yeah oh, why not <laughs>
1: yeah oh no. so yeah we get, we get to Djibouti and we find this internet cafe and I swear to God man, I, I sign in of my whatever my email account was back then just type in the like the email address power goes out everything switches off Like, okay. Whoa. Generators come back on. Everything reboots up. Because you know, like, back then, a big old computer takes, like, three minutes to reboot. Log back in. Write the first line of the email. Generator cuts out. It's like, oh, my God. (laughs) Wait for everything to turn back on. Log back in. And I just go, I'm here in Djibouti talk to you later. Bye. Press send. And I swear to God, I press send and I sent, and the power went out again. I'm just like, I fuck it. I'm out. (laughs) I hope that went through. Um... And then it's, it's sort of a fascinating city because it's got that French culture. So there's, like, French grocery stores in uh, the city with, like, cheeses and baguettes and wine and, you know, the oil, olives and things like that. But then outside, it's you're in Djibouti and there's, you know, people running around with their goats chewing quat, which is like a, a stimulant, uh, like a green leaf that has a stimulant to it. And Did you um, try some of that? Yeah, it definitely, definitely picks you up. Yeah. Um, is that the stuff they're cheap. saying? Like
0: the pirates will chew it, and they sort of get like cracked out on it, and and yes, or got cracked out is the wrong word, but like tweaked on it.
1: Yeah, yeah, it 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 definitely picks you up when you're feeling down.
0: Uh huh. Uh huh. And
1: um, but yeah, it was it was a lot of fun because you know one of my favorite things is so uh, they'd have like you know the uh like the the donor spits where you know you have that big cone of meat except it would all be goat meat, and they would you know fire roast it a whole bunch of spices but then they would put that into a baguette with just olive oil and le- lemon and some I don't know some parsley and then just like this intense chili paste and give you like this whole baguette just full of roasted goat meat and chili paste for like 50 cents.
0: I am here for that.
1: Yeah, and so we just sit there, cut it in half, get like a couple big bottles of Guinness Export. And that's your evening sorted. Just listen to the humming of all the gen- generators in the distance and, you know, the goats bleeding and the kids running around kicking a football. Or, And it's just like, yeah, I, we, are, we are fine. And uh, that's also where we got off the boat because that's where we were going.
0: So and what's so we your got plan? A room. You get off the boat and you're like, here, I'm in Djibouti, but we don't really have a plan to get yeah. to Europe?
1: Well, since Djibouti is a former colony of France, they have a nonstop flight to Paris every day. And so the plan is we'll take our thousand bucks each. We'll get on a flight to Paris and then we'll go either, we'll go somewhere on the med and just get jobs for the summer and figure mm. out what we want to do. And so we check into this hotel in Djibouti, drink a lot of red wine and, uh, eat a lot of baguettes and a lot of goat and have a lot of sex because we're finally <laughs> alone. Yeah. Cause and, you're not doing uh, that on the boat. <laughs> no, not so much. Um, and, uh, Yeah, and this sort of, we got on our plane to Paris, get to Paris, have more wine, more cheese, more snacks, just to have a great time in Paris, you know, because it's it's late spring, early summer, everyone's out, Um, it was the first time we'd been in Paris together, in fact, it might have been the first time I'd been in Paris, Um, and then we're just like, this is how long ago it was, we were walking by a travel agent, and they had a sale on flights to roads in greece for i want to say 75 bucks one way and we're just like two please because no um you know i i this is this is still a pretty common thing like a lot of you know 18 20 25 year olds will go down to these mediterranean tourist resorts and just get job at bars or hotels and just work there for the summer make shit loads of money everybody you know Gets high, gets drunk, gets fucked, and then you go back to school basically in the in the fall. And so, um, in fact, my wife had done this uh, like in Tenerife and Fuerteventura in the Canaries a couple times when she was younger. And so, just like yeah, let's go get jobs and bars and have a good time for a couple months, and just sort of calibrate what we had just done by sailing across the Indian right, Ocean. Right, because
0: now you need some downtime. Like you've and- done the hardcore adventure part.
1: Yeah, and so flight roads, and it's it's you know it's roads. It's beautiful. It's ancient. It's you know a whole new atmosphere. It's just a phenomenal place. You know the the lamb gyros for you know euro fifty with the beautiful garlicky tahine sauce and the you know the the perfect fluffy pita bread and you know the the seaside little fish shops where you see the fish coming in and the, they're you know literally beating the octopus and you you know serving it to you twenty minutes later. And it's it was that idyllic, and um, there was this street. So we we went into a hotel, negotiated to have a room there for a month, just to or for a couple of weeks, just to figure out what we were going to do. And there was it was right next to the bar street, basically. So we spent a couple of nights on the bar street, sort of getting the sense for the scene. And um, basically, the opposite happened of what happened in Thailand. So Anna got a job right away because she was you <laughs> know twenty something right. female. Who could work in a bar no problem and you know i'm this six four bearded indian dude from america who just like why are you here you're yeah. not european like you and, definitely uh,
0: don't belong here
1: yeah i mean i i ended up like DJing in a norwegian metal bar one night which was a lot of fun um but other than that like it well, just is that wasn't the extent happening. of your uh, norwegian
0: and, death metal career
1: Yes, that was the extent. One night in Rhodes in Greece. <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. it was a fun <laughs> night. yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, you'll never not have fun with death metal Norwegians, especially when they're on vacation.
0: yeah, that's that's like one of those things people joke about. It's a real deal. Like Norwegian death metal is serious.
1: Yeah, yeah. and they fucking drink when they're on vacation, let me tell you. Uh, but anyway, so it just this it just was one of those things where it's not working out, and we're like, you know what, let's let's figure this. Out. Like, let's let, what's our fallback then from here? And it sort of came to this point where I was like, you know what, I had just like the year before, Mo- the year uh, I, before I lived in Moscow, I was living in Prague for a year. I still had tons of friends that still lived in Prague. You know, I, I had a you know I had a, a, a social scene there. I had a community there. I was like, you know what why don't we just go to Prague? We can crash with uh, my friends and we can find an apartment. I know how much it will cost. I know I can get us both a job like within a day, you know, doing different things. And Anna had never been to Prague before. She always wanted to live there because it was, you know, it was Prague and everybody wants to live in Prague at some point in their life. So we're like, yeah, fuck it. So we booked an easy jet flight, went to Prague. Within a week we had our own apartment. That was an awesome, amazing apartment. (laughs) Right uh, in Malastrana, a couple, a block from the river, uh, right on the main tram line. Uh, Within two weeks, we we both had jobs. Um, I had two jobs, in fact. I started working in an organic wine bar at night while uh, teaching during the day. And we ended up being there for, God, I want to say about six months before we got uh, the travel itch again. And then... Yeah, we just got on a plane and went to Chicago.
0: So so out of your extensive traveling how far up there is is the sailing trip from Phuket to Djibouti?
1: I mean I would say as far as like technical difficulty. Uh, difficulty It's top uh, yeah it's top five for sure. Um I've been to much harder places and done harder things. Um but it's it's a top five
0: that's for sure uh i want to talk to you before we we get on to some other stuff i want to talk to you about the gulf of Aden in particular Uh, before you sail across that are you are you well aware of what's going on there with piracy do you know why pirates yeah oh yeah why why is this one stretch of ocean more dangerous than any other stretch in the world
1: i mean the, the 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 shortest answer is it's a failed state and has been a kleptocratic or failed state for a very very long time, uh, and so the the communities there, especially along the coasts, um, the one of their only resources for income is just to board a boat, demand ransom money for hostages, and that's how they make their money so that they can then buy fish, buy you know food for their children, you know buy water, you know. Buy things to plant, like to live their life. So it's life. not a
0: situation where and, they're out here like Jack Sparrowing it up. It's a, it's an economic reality. It's
1: a life or death. Yeah, and it's life or death for them. I mean, they, there are some situations where you hear like if if you know they aren't able to pull in money to buy food, they have to then start robbing each other. Who are going out? The guys who are going out fishing, they don't have to go out and then rob them so they can eat. And then those guys starve to death. And so it's this, this cycle of. Their economy has become this bizarre, just pirate-based system along the coast. I mean, this is—I'm only talking about there. This is not like the whole country. There's vastly different things going on in the interior right. of the country, um, and it, it's also—it's very, very small amount of people doing this. I mean, it, it's not like this thing where there's—you know—sorry, <clears throat> ten thousand people sitting there on the beach with AK-47s waiting for you to come by you know, it's, it's fairly well organized, like, because these are very specific trade routes that boats go along. And, you know, they, they, especially with the tankers, I mean, you can see them coming miles away. And so the reality of the situation that is, you know, there's nobody, they know nobody's coming to help them and they got to, they got to face reality and do what they got to do to survive. You know, like, like Pac said, man, I never did crime. Man. I had to do. Yeah.
0: What describe a typical Somali, uh, pirate vessel.
1: Um, as far as we understood, they were sort of just like old fishing junks that were usually like 20, 30 feet long crew cabin deck, just a, like an old fishing junk, like nothing special, just, if it's barreling at you across the sea and not fishing, you know you're fucked.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Because it's loaded with guys with guns, and, and they're in a desperate situation. Yeah. And,
1: yeah, and like you might not even see the guys. You'll just see a boat barreling yeah. towards you, and you're like, oh, fuck. You know, and sometimes you don't even see it. You'll see a radar. You'll see a dot barreling towards you. And you're
0: like, oh, and So if you <laughs> see that blip, I mean, what do you do?
1: Well, you. I mean it's sort of like if they're already barreling towards you, they already have you. I mean, you can outrun them because, you know, they're probably going 20 knots and you like a sailboat, like we were in a 60 footer, like we top out at eight, nine knots. If the current's with this us, nothing you can do. Yeah. You're just, so, at,
0: you're at the, yeah. At the will of the gods almost.
1: Yeah. Once you're spotted, it's over. Yeah. Once you're spotted, it's over. Cause they're, they, it's, uh, you know, it's like in the wilds where, uh, you know, uh, why humans can run long distances is the, the reason in evolution is because all, almost all animals are only sprinting animals. And so we can literally run an animal down where they can't run anymore and then we would kill it and eat it. It's a similar thing where like if you're in this big sailboat, you can run, but you're going to be run down and mm-hmm. they're going to get you. And if they have to run, that's going to waste more fuel. They'll be more pissed off. They'll need more money. And it's just you're digging the oh
0: whole God, That's crazy. Um, I did some research before the show in the, into this to see like how how did this happen, and it seems to be a situation where in the '80s, uh, Somali civil war breaks out, and right. prior to that, there were some international initiatives to establish uh, fishing culture in Somalia because they had a, a very rich fishery, which is one reason your captain wanted to go over there um, on the way. So they have this rich yep. fishery, um, but when the government collapse, the navy folds. There's no one to protect the fishery anymore, right. and that means that poachers come in from other countries, and they overfish the Somali waters yeah, and they just drain, drain it, it dry. Yeah. So the so the fishermen weren't actively sitting around waiting to be pirates. They ran out of fish.
1: Yeah, exactly. When you run out of fish, you gotta. I mean, you gotta put food on the table, right? I mean, what're yeah. you supposed to do?
0: So you got incredibly lucky just, I think.
1: Yeah. Well that's it though man. Travel is I I've, I've always felt like travel is 90% luck and 10% just okay chaos. <laughs> um you know I've I've always been extremely lucky. I've kind of recognized that and that sort of made me make better decisions later in my life as opposed to where I placed mm-hmm. myself. Um, but yeah, I mean I've you know I uh, story for another day but you know traveling through India or Afghanistan or you know Palestine or Congo or places like that like you the thing that you come out at the end of it's like holy shit I can't believe how lucky we got you know it's almost baffling because you hear all the other stories and blah 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 and you know bad things happen out there all the time and you know bad things don't have to happen you travel most of us are going to die you know within five feet of our fucking home so it's might as well give um, it a go right but it it yeah, well, that's how yeah, my attitude was. But it's also that sort of thing um, where you got to know yourself, man. Like, more than anything else, you got to know what you're comfortable with. And you got to know where your lines are. And if you feel you're about to cross a line, you got to step back. Because if you don't step back and you cross that line, you're probably going to catch a straight bullet in the head. Or you're going to, you know, end up in a, a secret prison in fucking the Congo or some bullshit. Because... I hate to say this, but it's it's kind of like a gut feeling where you're just like, ah. And the second you have that, yeah. you got to go. And
0: you would know, actually. I, I totally forgot about that. But you're not joking about the secret prison in the Congo.
1: No, no. That, that's that a story absolutely finale, yeah. is. Uh, before we wrap up, I want <laughs> yeah. you
0: to talk about your podcast, One More Road for the Beer.
1: Oh, yeah. So last year... um great friend of mine uh joe stang who is now the editor for homebrew magazine he's also the co-author of camera's good beer guide to belgium uh he was living in berlin and uh, we were you know beer drinking buddies we had a beer club here with brewers and beer writers and we were like hey why don't we sort of turn this into a podcast about traveling around europe and finding the best places to drink beer in cities around europe that we love to go and drink beer in and so we uh, got some studio time and we would basically uh, run each show where we come in and be like, okay, let's talk about Bamberg, for instance, in northern Bavaria. Here's the type of beer you're going to find in Bamberg, in that case, smoke beer, uh, things like that. And then here are five, six places where you're going to have the best experience drinking beer in the city, meet people, have fun. Here's a couple places to have food. Here's a couple places to lay your head at night. And then sort of like a one special place that spoke to us at the end to sort of uh, seal off the episode they're only 30 minutes long, so it's like the perfect sort of commute thing. And, you know, we, we did we to Prague, we did Bamberg, we did Rome, we did uh, uh, Brussels, of course, and Antwerp, uh, Berlin, a couple other cities. And, uh, yeah, the first season was just uh, Europe, and uh, hopefully we'll get to do a second season where we'll maybe do cities in the U.S. And, yeah, it's just a way for, you know, s- Joe is sort of like my beer Sherpa, I like to say, because he's an expert. He's he's a beer writer. That's what he does. And I'm, you know, I'm a food, drink, and travel writer. And so having someone of his deep understanding of beer to sort of be like, you know, this is why this beer culture is important and this is what it means and these are you know, the nuances and this is how not to be an asshole about it and, you know, have him guide you. And luckily we had been to a lot of the same cities on trips together or separately. So we were able to sort of like Blend in, the expert and the novice. And I think it's it a great
0: thing. You guys can look them up on Instagram at One More Road for the beer, and you can look up Zach at, at yeah. ZTP Johnston. Uh, I promise, people. I would ask you this, Mister Bourbon. <laughs> give me two or three recommendations <laughs> that people might be able to find in the states that you would highly recommend.
1: Okay. Um, I'll give you two bourbons and one Tennessee right. whiskey. Let's do it. How about that? <laughs> Um, I think for bourbon right now, what's most interesting are the special releases uh, distilleries are doing each year. Uh, so, for instance, um, Basil Hayden's does three or four special releases of special barrelings of small batches um, per year. And they just released, I want to say it's it's Granny's uh, release. It was the first release this year. And it's this, this beautiful, subtle, a little bit spicy, a little bit appley, you know, sort of like a, a cinnamon apple pie thing going on, a little bit leathery. It's just a really nice bourbon, and you know, it's it's one of those things where it gets released, and then that's it. There, you're never going to have another combination of those barrels from that Rick House. So you got to
0: grab it while you can.
1: Yeah, and it's going to be special and something you can. It, it, you know, it's. You know, I don't like to be too precious about booze. I like buy the booze. I drink the booze. I enjoy it. You know, then I want, I want to try something else or, you know, if I like it, I'll buy it again. But with, some, with these special releases, it's very, it's very nice because you can kind of savor it a bit more. And, you know, maybe you break it out, you know, when you're having friends over and, you, you know, you want to you talk about it. You want to walk through it and you want to be able to enjoy it a little bit longer. Um, because you can buy a bottle of Basil mm-hmm. Haze anywhere mm-hmm. and it's going to be great. You know, And you can you can drink that on your own when it's, you know, after yeah, deadline the day. day. Um, yeah, exactly. Gotta get that fuel in you. Um, and then I would say there's some interesting... I would... One of the things I love about bourbon is it doesn't have to be made in Kentucky, even though 90 plus percent of it's made in Kentucky. Um, it just has to follow other specific rules. And so a lot of interesting bourbons are being made in places outside of Kentucky right now. When in my One of my absolute favorites is um, a Texas pot still bourbon from Waco, Texas called from Balcones distillery.
0: Balcones. And um,
1: it's, yeah, it's a grain to glass operation. They're about 30 to 40 bucks a bottle, which is very accessible for a small batch uh, bourbon. Uh, It's a straight bourbon as well. What's interesting about Waco is their rickhouse is right there in the center of the city. And the climate, of course, in central texas is completely different than the climate in the hollers in kentucky and so basically they're able to age the whiskey more quickly because there's a, a bigger variance in the climate the heat of the day and the cool of the night and they uh, are able to get a i, w- I would almost say a richer more toasted oak more leathery more sort of pecan mm. pie aspect going in their bourbon with like a little bit of like black tea in there as well. And uh, that, and it's like less like old library leather and more like oiled saddle leather. And it's just a beautiful bourbon and it's affordable and accessible. And I would highly recommend, especially if you're in, you know, the the Tennessee, Ohio Valley, Kentucky, Ohio Valley area, you know, it it gives you like, oh shit, bourbon can be something else and still be bourbon because it still follows the rules. It's still certified as a straight bourbon. Um, so yeah, I would I would look for that it's a nice bottle as well, unique sort of stubby bottle with a red label, and uh, yeah, and for your neck of the woods, well, close to your neck of the woods, uh, w- one of my favorite whiskeys of the last year was uh, a Tennessee whiskey, put out by Nelson's Greenbrier, which you can find fairly nationwide. Like not not every state has it yet, but it's it's getting there. And basically, Nelson's Greenbrier. I love the story of the Nelson brothers you know, they, they found out that their great grandfather had this huge distillery before prohibition. And, uh, they happened upon the old, uh, distillery and the old rickhouses. And then they just started working Holy to get crap! It back, so they went out somewhere uh, in the early Tennessee and found
0: this place?
1: Yeah, they found it and they, they just, you know, it just felt right. The energy was right. And they made their lives about reopening their family's distillery. And so, um, they they got up and running in Nashville and, you know, as what all distillers do is they started off, you know, sourcing their booze from MGP or Alberta and barreling it to prove that they knew what they were doing with whiskey and that they could actually mm-hmm. execute. And so they're making Bellmead bourbon uh, and brought that back. They do some very fascinating uh, casks finishing with that bourbon as well. But in the meantime, they started distilling Tennessee Whiskey again, which of course has to go through the linking kind of process. And just last year, they finally did a full rollout of their original sour mash Tennessee whiskey according to their great great grandfather's recipe, which is a high wheat uh, whiskey as opposed to a high rye. It's a beautiful old throwback label in a nice old throwback bottle. And it's just delicious shit. Like you, <laughs> you, you can share it with your friends and you tell the story, but you also want to drink it for yourself. <laughs> I think I might run
0: down the street and grab some of that tonight. (laughs) Yeah.
1: And uh, like, I'm also, I'm sort of a big proponent of Tennessee whiskey above Kentucky bourbon. I love Kentucky bourbon, don't get me wrong. But that Lincoln County process through the uh, sugar maple charcoal filtering just adds this extra layer to the juice that is, to me, makes it stand out. And that's why Tennessee whiskey used to be the drink of everybody. You know, Frank Sinatra was buried with a fucking bottle of Jack Daniels. You know, everybody drank Jack Daniels because Tennessee whiskey was. That like
0: one step more refined. As You're doing bourbon. a really good job of trying to win over the audience right now. <laughs> right. Well, I bet 80 yeah. percent uh, of our listeners are in Memphis. So right.
1: Well, man, I mean that's just it. It's sort of like you know I remember back in the days like with with like my grandfather or something like that. Like bourbon's what you kept under the sink in the garage to like you know hide from the wife, and Tennessee whiskey's what you kept on the bar in the you know in the pool room.
0: That's what I'm talking about. So.
1: But yeah, man, so that, that, those are my recommendations.
0: Cool, uh, we appreciate it. What's up next for you? Um, so just finished the
1: UpRocks 2020 travel hot list, which was this huge undertaking. We got you know, over 40 riders, 140 entries, all the best travel, food, festival, and drink stuff you should do in 2020. So you can head over to UpRocks and check that out. And now I'm sort of like getting back into the swing of things after, uh, after that endeavor. And yeah, I've got a little bit of travel coming up. Uh, hopefully, uh, at the end of next month, where are you and headed to hopefully out your direction actually. So, Oh, swing yeah. on by. Yeah. And so, uh, actually going to try and, uh, uh, think about doing maybe a whiskey podcast. You heard it here first. And, uh, <laughs> All
0: right, we're breaking news now. Yeah.
1: And, you know, and then just sort of, you know, you know how the years go, man, it's sort of, it, it, yeah, like I have a, I have a great job, you know, uh, but you're still sort of when it comes to travel and what you're going to do, you're, you're almost month to month sometimes. And so, oh, yeah.
0: It's a blur. It's a blur. Yeah. And, uh, anyway, well, when you head this way, let me know. We just got a new distillery downtown about three years ago. Oh, nice. Um, they're just now starting to get some whiskeys out of that place. So Right on. Might be worth trying that out. Memphis does not have a strong whiskey-making tradition, so uh, well, we are we, trying to up our game. I was going to say that it sounds like something that we might need to change uh absolutely and we do have great breweries though because we're on top of an amazing aquifer so right
1: well you got that i mean you guys are so lucky you're in that mississippi valley man where you just yeah it's lush
0: it's lush. The drinking water is clean as it gets for now until the uh, TVA pollutes it. But <laughs> right. Yeah. Anyway, well, Zach, man, thank you so much. It's amazing to talk to you as always. And oh, seriously, likewise. hit me up. Love to hang out oh, again.
1: Hey, thank you so much. And yeah, follow me on Instagram if you want to see where I'm going. ZTP Johnston.
0: Hit him up. He's a great follow. Probably one of the best around. No, thanks, you, man. Get Lost Podcast is a production of the Sold Outside Exploration Company. Follow us on Instagram at Get Lost Podcast. Check out our blog, soldoutblog.com.